Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Secret Resume Podcast, hosted by me, Melody Moore. In this podcast, we explore the people, places, and experiences that have shaped my guests, those which have influenced who they are as people and where they are in their work life today. You can listen in as we have a rich exploration of often unexamined and undiscussed but very important aspects of their lives, or as I like to call it, their secret resume. So my guest today is Paul Holbrook. Welcome, Paul. Really excited to have you here today on this very beautiful, sunny November day. Um, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a... I'm what I what I would call a, a leadership rebel. I'm somebody that spent 20 years in the financial services industry. Uh, I originally started off as a developer, as a as a coder. My 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 degree was in mathematics, so I was a bit of a geek, um, but a kind of a sociable geek, I, I would have said. Um, but I realised after about two or three years of of coding in banks that I was more interested in how people worked than I was in how computers worked, and that naturally then took me up the people management pathway over the next what was it 20 years i suppose um to to the to the i mean the height of my what i call first career was running division of 350 people in change within an investment bank in the city of london and then kind of well not just then it was it was kind of always through i had this kind of slight discomfort around managers and how managers especially in expert industries like technology never seemed to quite get management right almost like they did it on the side and it really frustrated me so about seven years ago my wife emma turned around to me and said look you're miserable doing what you do (laughs) why don't you go and create a business try and change the world and so that's what i did i i left to disrupt the existing story of toxic management um taking us from a place where managers rule through fear to a place where they where they lead with love that's essentially me and I call myself a leadership rebel perfect and the name of your company is the name of the company is diary detox limited um but the there are kind of two two different focus Mm -hmm. one is around diary detox which is a leadership tool that is there to help people create time for themselves and to lead others um, but my real passion, the, 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 the thing that will disrupt the existing story management is, is, a, is a side of the business called Time to Lead, which is, I suppose you would call it a leadership development pathway mm-hmm. for taking people from a, being an aspiring manager up to a, to a competent and loving leader. Perfect. Thank you. So let's uh, actually have a question before um, we even go back to which made me think um, when you were just speaking. You said you were a geek. Are you still a geek? Um, yeah, I suppose kind of, but in a, in a slightly different way. Um, I mean, I, I really wasn't a maths geek. I mean, you, 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 you know, I'm, we'll, we'll get around to this to this conversation in in, in looking at what we're going to be talking about today. But I suppose I liked computers. Um, I was a fairly logical individual. I am a fairly logical logical individual. I think we we a lot of the time I think we overcomplicate things, probably through the fear of what it will mean to uh, to to uncomplicate things. Um, 
but my kind of guiding mantra or my, sorry my strategy my technique for dealing with people who don't want to change things over my 20-year career in the city was but imagine if it were really that simple and we didn't even consider it and so I would usually use the phrase just humor me let's just try it this once and if it isn't that simple we'll find out really quickly and you know 90% of the time some of the problems we had really were that simple so I suppose you'd call me a little bit of a, a geek around that I like to simplify things um, on the technology side, I'm much less of a geek now. My son has taken over that mantle. If there's anything to be done, anything to be fixed, I will just get my wife to call him. <laughs> He's at university in, in um, Lancaster studying computer science. So he is definitely a geek. Um, but I'm kind of a geek in, in, in other ways. You know, I fly a plane. I play the piano. Um, and yeah, I like I like making things really simple. I, I, I like helping people make things really simple and helping managers get the best out of their people. So if that's geeky, yes, I am. If it isn't, I'm probably. <laughs> My nephew actually studied that exact same course at Lancaster. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> he's now working in. One. He's working in a hotel now. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to do with technology either. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's go back back in time uh to your first uh, what you've picked which is really interesting is you've picked people um so all of your uh the part uh the things that we're going to talk about are specifically around people um, yeah. and the people that have influenced you uh to be who you are and what you're doing today so let's go back to your first one which is uh Anne Cohen Cohen and she'll probably never listen to that I just got goosebumps I got a bit emotional <laughs> um and she you know I, I really hope that someday she hears this and I might even try and get it in front of her, like the fact that, the, that we're going to talk about Anne. So, yeah. So, I mean, I had a quite an unorthodox, um, an unorthodox education, um, not crazily, but, you know, I, I came from a very working class background. My dad was a milkman. My mum was a factory worker. And for us, well, for me, school was just somewhere I went to be with my friends. It wasn't something we did for academics, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and both both myself and my sister Patsy, we both kind of flourished later in life, I suppose you could say. So I left school at 16 um, with very mediocre grades. Um, I had, two, uh, was it four, four C's? I think it was, no, one B, three C's, two D's, an E and a fail. The fail was in art, <laughs> hence I'm not an artist. Um, and I, I left school not really knowing what to do. And I kind of, you know, chilled over the summer. Um, and then it was like the two days before people, my friends were about to go back to college and I kind of went, oh, what am I going to do? And I basically applied for the first course I could find, which was one in computing, interestingly. And I dropped out of it. And then I did another course in electrical engineering and I dropped out of that. I did a couple of jobs and was made redundant. And it, I, I just had no idea really what I wanted to do. And about two years later, I was helping my girl. I was 18. My girlfriend was 16. And I was helping my girlfriend with her maths homework at the kitchen table in um, in Offenham near Evesham in Worcestershire. And my girlfriend's mom, Anne Cohen, was just happened to be doing some stuff in the kitchen as I was helping her daughter out, Joe. And she turned around to me and she said, you remember a heck of a lot of your maths. Have you ever considered doing an A-level in maths? And I kind of went, uh, 
no. <laughs> and I was at a crossroads <laughs> where I'd just been made redundant again. And I thought, what, what, what am I going to do? And so um, it just so happened it coincided with the start of a new school term. And so I applied to Worcester Sixth Form College to do an A-level in maths and an A-level in computer science. And they accepted me. They wouldn't let me do any more than that because I'd taken two years out of school and mm -hmm. doing three was seen as not, not, not a good thing. And I really enjoyed it. I had an amazing teacher called Simon Tinley, brilliant maths teacher. Um, and I really kind of found myself. I, I still I still skied school college a little bit, but I could probably get away with it because I was doing things I really was quite good at and I quite enjoyed. And then from there, all the people, all my contemporaries there were started applying to universities. And I thought, well, maybe I should apply to a university. And I did. I applied to um, the London universities, mostly um, Imperial College, King's, UCL, Royal Holloway and so on. Why um, London? Uh, whew, I don't know, really. I think it was I think they. I, I saw them as more prestigious, I suppose. There was never any chance of me ever going to Oxford and Cambridge with my background. Um, although nowadays, I think you probably do need a little bit of diversity of thought in those areas, if I'm really honest. Um, but yeah, I, I, I just saw that. And also my best friend was was going to one as well. He was going to UCL. And I I interviewed at, at, at most of them, um, got a place at UCL and I accepted it. And I've just got to say this because I think it's really interesting. Um, I actually got a call from Royal Holloway um, and they, they basically said, why haven't you accepted our, our offer? And I said, because I haven't got an offer. <laughs> said, oh, well, we thought we sent one. Have you never been to see us? I said, no. He said, would you like to come? And I thought, hey, it's a day off college. Why not? So I, I went to Egham on the train on my own from Evesham, changed at Reading and went to Royal Holloway and walked onto the campus and just went, oh, my goodness, this is beautiful. Mm. And that day I rang up UCL and asked them to release me from my offer. And they said, well, we can't make you come somewhere you don't want to come. So, of course, we'll release you. And I ended up going to Royal Holloway. Um, and yeah, that I mean, that my life has been filled with, I would call them happy coincidences. Mm. But that chain of events took me on a journey to finding out what it was I really wanted to do, I suppose. And it all started from from those fateful words from Anne Cohen saying, you really, you really remember a lot of your maths. You know, she saw something in me that I absolutely did not see in myself ever. And um, years later, I actually, in my job in, in the city of London, many years later, I met Anne Cohen's son-in-law, who is married to Joe, the girl that I was dating <laughs> at that point. Um, we actually met, we had a meeting and um, in London, and we both kind of were from the Evesham area. So it was really unusual. And I and I found out who he was and I said, you must tell Anne that I would not be here right now if it wasn't for her. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm getting a bit emotional again now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, Anne Cohen is 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 definitely one of those people. Of course, we're, we're excluding my mum and dad and my sister. Yeah, and well, I was going to ask about your <laughs> mum and dad because, you know, they presumably had not been to university. You no. know, you you didn't have that maybe that expectation that you would no not at all it was I mean I'll be honest um I had friends who were at school with me um, and I went to a school originally Evesham High School in Evesham and 
some of them were going to go on and do A-levels. And it, for me, I saw their, them as the posh kids. You know, mm. A-levels were what the posh kids did. Right. Um, and so, no, there was absolutely no pressure on me. And it was no suggestion whatsoever. My parents didn't care about me. They loved me deeply. And I think mm. that's the biggest thing they gave me was that love. It was unconditional. And I felt loved um, wholeheartedly. And I still do. Um, but no, there was no pressure on me. And I was the first person in our family to go to university. Um, but I found my own way. And I, I I know that if I had been pushed, I probably would have made a bit of a hash of it. Mm. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, so no, I they, they, they gave me, I, I would honestly say they gave me the people skills mm-hmm. that I needed through life. And I, and I say this to my son right now, yes okay go and do your degree go and do all these things but and my son's called William William the one thing that will carry you through your life with success is your ability to deal with people mm-hmm. you can learn any skill from a book yeah it's really hard to learn people if, mm-hmm. if you've got a natural talent for it which he has and my stepdaughter Lucy has as well if you've got a natural talent with people it's going to take you miles um yeah and how did your parents feel about you going to do a levels going to university were they excited what was their reaction <laughs> so my mum um my mum was like yeah okay fine yeah great you know and I mean crikey she supported me through it all I mean she paid for me through university I didn't have to get a job I could literally, I mean, she, yeah, she's, I am a bit of a mummy's boy. So you know, she, <laughs> she, she, she would support me no matter what. My dad, uh, he was definitely supportive, but remember I'd gone from school to a college, had dropped out, gone to another college, had dropped out, had done two jobs and been made redundant. And for him, it was just another, and he was like, oh, goodness not another thing you know and I totally get it right I I would I probably would have thought exactly the same thing I think he didn't really mind he just wanted me to stick at something um and I and I did and even though when I went to the college I I I wasn't always the best at attendance he did get a few calls from from my tutor saying Paul's not turning up what's going on um when I when I finished it um and I got my 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 grades I, I was predicted an, an, an a in computing and a c in maths and i actually got an a in maths and a c in computing which was really bizarre um but when when i rang him up he got incredibly emotional and, he, and you could just tell he was so proud but yeah mm. they, they 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 would support us in whatever we did mm. they just wanted us to take it seriously and make the most of it i think mm. it's interesting what you say about um you know it was it was someone outside of the family. And I think that's really interesting, isn't it? That um, who we mix with and associate with, if they're, if they're brought up with perhaps different expectations or aspirations to us, it gives us a sense of what's possible. Whereas if we're perhaps in our own world and that's not the norm, um, you know, that kind of, difference or diversity of friends and uh, acquaintances just gives you a glimpse into another world yeah I mean um I can't remember who it was but I saw some maybe it was it I think it maybe had been a Daniel Priestley podcast I think 
And he was talking about, I think it was him, and I'm really sorry if it was somebody else and I've, I've, I've misquoted him, but was talking about how the environment, the environment that you put yourself in is so influential, so influential in, in, in the opportunities that arise, in the things that you realize. Um, and if you, you know, generally they would say, if you surround your people with naysayers, chances are you're not going to accept mm. a lot. But if you surround yourself with optimistic people, chances are some of that's going to rub off on you. And I, I honestly do believe it did with me. Mm. Lovely. Thank you. So let's, should we move to your next, uh, your next person who was your first manager in your first job in the city? Mm. Yeah, Jerry Shul. So, yeah, I mean, I, when I left university, I mean, I went from doing a, a maths degree to doing a master's in IT at UCL. So I did get to UCL in the end. <laughs> Eventually. Um, <yeah. clears throat> and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do next in terms of job. And I just happened to be reading a magazine called, there were two com two computer magazines back then. There was Computer Weekly and there was Computing. And I was reading Computing on the way into my final exam and I saw this one page advert crikey if I'd have thought about it I'd have got it out because I think I actually have it here with me now um I actually had an advert um that was called oh, I can't find it that was for technical associates it was basically graduate programmers for a bank called Credit Suisse First Boston mm -hmm. and I looked at it and I thought wow that looks interesting and I saw the salary and back then this was like 1999 I think it was and the average graduate salary back then was about 14,000, 15,000, mm -hmm. 16,000 pounds, maybe. This was 25,000 pounds starting. So wow. I went, wow. And I thought, I'm going to apply for that. It's the only job I applied for. And I got it um, alongside, I think it was about 15 to 25 other graduates. And so I was a graduate programmer. You know, we went through a series of um, training because university can't prepare you for absolutely everything. And then I was... Having completed that training, I was put into um, what they call global operations systems development. Um, and I was Sounds very, fancy. It, it does, doesn't it? And it always does. I've got a friend who never went to the city and he's always very impressed by it. It's like, it's no different, probably worse than everywhere else. Um, but I was working for a guy called Jerry Shaw, a really, it's quite zen, actually, Jerry. He was quite chilled very calm took everything in his stride obviously very capable very experienced um but jerry jerry gave me a piece of work that if i'd been him i would never have given me <laughs> but i suppose he, he saw something in me that i was capable of doing this thing it was quite a it was quite a well i saw it was quite a critical thing it was basically um, it was it, it was writing the code that would that would process messages that get sent from Credit Suisse to the Deutsche Börse Exchange. Um, so for me, for first job, I'm going whoa, and so yeah, that was one of my first things I did. And he never he never micromanaged. Um, he always empowered me. Um, I don't know. He 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 just looking back on it, he was the most and I, I use that word Zen because that is the absolute overriding thing I remember about him is that nothing ever really seemed to phase him, even though it was that kind of, you know, when all around you were going crazy, stay calm. And that that was Jerry to, to a T. Um and he was just a lovely guy 
he, he you know he would do his best for you he would look after you check in with you not too much i always call it the call it the goldilocks zone never too much never too little just right um and i think you can start to learn your management craft in two different ways you can either learn it the the bad way which is see the managers who you worked for who are horrible and think i will never do that and i've had some of those mm-hmm. um or you can do it the other way, which is see the ones that are great and go, wow, that is just, you're a swan. <laughs> you're just floating around and things are happening around you. And it was that empowerment and support. Um, and he does know this because um, somebody actually put a post on LinkedIn years ago, who is the best manager you ever had. And I did say, it was Jerry Shaw and I at Jerry Shawled him and he came back. He said, that's really, really kind. Thank you very much. And it was like, no, it's totally deserved. And this was when I kind of gone through my first time journey of, of, of going as managing director. So that probably meant quite a lot, but having mm. gone all career up to that level, he's the one I singled out and he was right at the beginning of the journey. So yeah, that was Jerry. It sounds like he was both an inspiration to you in terms of style of management, but also that he took a chance on you and I'm I'm curious what you think he saw in you (laughs) (laughs) he may not have seen anything in me (laughs) it may have just been that it was his style Mm. you know um I hope I hope he saw in me that um I I really enjoyed what I did Mm. Um, I hope he saw that I was a very capable programmer I don't really think the people skills came into it much you know I I have had moments since when you know odd odd moments during your career you'll get hit hunted and the recruitment person wants to meet you for a coffee like a clandestine coffee in a coffee shop (laughs) in the the city and nobody can see you and I remember turning up to one of those in particular and it was two people from the same company same kind of headhunting company were meeting me to interview me and they kind of looked at me as I sat down and they kind of went looked at the CV and then looked at me and then looked at the CV and then went yeah something doesn't make sense here and I went what do you mean and they said well maths degree IT lifetime in computing and yet you're and what they were really saying is because I turned up Lovely smile, nice handshake. Hi, guys, how are you? How are things? They're very personable. <laughs> they look them in the eye. <laughs> yeah, right? And they said, it just doesn't make sense. And I went, right. And, and all I could say was, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> it's unusual for me because I usually have to respond to everything. And, it, and, it, and I, I was, I, I hope he would have seen in me that whilst I was very technically capable, I was also very personally capable as well and like I said that that's the bit that my mum and dad gave to me and then universe and university and college gave me the kind of techie side of it and whatever natural given talents I had um so yeah I really don't know what he saw in me um I, I'd hope it would be two of those things but knowing Jerry I think he was just bloody good at being a manager you know he gave people a chance anybody I'll mm. give a chance and I'll, you know, and, and, and this is 100% within my ethos and how I now teach management is that, you know, micromanagement isn't something you do. It's it's something someone else feels. Mm. And as a manager, you have the ability to make anybody feel 
micromanaged. Um, and it's usually by just checking in as much as you need to be comfortable, but no more than you need. And I think then he would have seen, okay, he's making progress. And then he'd just step back a little bit and then come back in again and step back. So I I think it's more that. I, I would love to think it's something he specifically saw in me, but I'm not sure it is. I think that's probably why I've pointed him out as one of the people that were um, a standout person in my career or so. So he took a risk on people. Yeah, yeah. And you, you, I think you do have to take a risk, but I don't think you have to take that big a risk. Yeah. Um, we hear today, I mean, we've heard it for years and it, and it, it really, it really grates with me is that when, when you hear commentary around good management, they all, or even good leadership, people will say a key to a good manager is someone who trusts their people. And I got to say, I couldn't disagree more. It, 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 you're not there to trust your people. You're there to manage them. And trust is a very different thing, right? And, and here, here's the example I always use. I always say to people, you're, you're in a stable relationship. Yes. And they'll go, yes. And I'll go, okay. So do you, do you think that you're, and, and I'm assuming that you don't believe that your partner will cheat on you? And they'll go, yes, of course. And I'll say, do you feel the need to go and, and I said, why is that? And I said, because I trust them. I said, okay, I get that, right. Do you feel the need to go and check on their phone to make sure they're not? And they'll go, no, of course not. Why? Because I trust them. And that's the difference, right? When you talk about tr trust, is, it, trust is almost a blind faith. Trust is a, I know it's not going to happen because I trust you. That's the whole point. And when you say to managers, you need to trust your people, we're using that, that, that version of trust of, so you can basically just walk away and know that it's all going to happen magically. It's like, no, because that isn't reality. <laughs> um, you do have to check up on your people. You just don't have to check up on them more than you need to or more than they think you need to. And that 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 amount is something that you should agree between you. It's an expectation that you should create. And that's my always my thing around trust is that the reason most managers are really scared off by that phrase is because they know what trust is. And if you were to take it to its natural conclusion, that means you just have to give somebody a task, walk off and then just assume it'll get done. That's abdicating responsibility, not delegating. And so, yes, every manager has to take some element of risk. But the amount of risk you need to take is decided between you and the person who you are managing. And it should be a conversation between the two. So. Yeah, lots of managers don't do that. They just basically, they'll give you a task, then come and check in every five seconds. Right, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it, you're doing it. And some people love that. I would have personally hate that. I would have seen that as micromanagement. But he just knew how far back to stand and then to come back in at the right moment. Mm -hmm. And I have a technique that I use that helps people decide on what that time frame should be. But yeah, definitely he did take a risk, just not an uncalculated risk, I believe. Mm. And I think of, I actually think a lot of leadership is around risk or perception of risk. Um, and the reason that we don't do things um, often is because it feels personally risky to us. Yeah, 100 percent. I mean, um, in in this in the second kind of um, program that, that we run called Time to Manage, it's about equipping managers with all the skills they need to become a manager. 
there's one that I never ever see um, in other in other management courses that it is and, and and the way we do it is we do it so they're done at, at specific times you, you do them in mm -hmm. the right order at specific times and one of them is really early on and it's called understanding and dealing with risk yeah and it's the it's one of the most other than setting targets understanding and dealing with risk is one of the most important mm. skills that any new manager has to have because many new managers don't know some of the risks that are existing within their worlds and one of the reasons they don't know those risks is because they're not talking to their people because their people know their risks they, mm. they are living it every day they see it every day and so whilst you see other management courses that have these modules called having great one-to-ones yeah i mean having great one-to-ones in itself is not an end in itself it's part of a bigger thing and so for me learning to have good one-to-ones is part of a module called understanding and dealing with risk because i want managers to realize that having a one-to-one -one with your people making time to talk to your people is a fundamental part of understanding the risk layout of your world and once you know that risk's there you can ignore it or you can choose to do something about it and that that is a key thing and yeah we are we're scared of taking risk but risk is it's a fundamental part and anybody that doesn't like taking risk probably has no place in the role of manager because it's just a core part of it <laughs> well i think there's something really important about understanding your own attitude aptitude attitude whatever the word is towards risk isn't there and some people will find some things risky and other things not um but i'm not sure people necessarily understand how much their uh risk appetite is driving their behaviors mm, um, because we think we're more rational than we actually are <laughs> that's basically my fundamental line for life is we're not as rational as we think we are um <clears throat> right let's move on to um uh your next uh person so they were very different to jerry is that right yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so the next person um and I don't think it's because of who they were or what they did, but I think it's because of what they saw in me. Um, and that was really massively important. So next person is, is a guy called Adam Wheelwright. And Adam was um, a Northern Cambridge graduate. And he was he, he, he loved the facts. He, he said what he likes and he likes what he bloody well says. Um, <laughs> Uh, rugby league, Cambridge Blue, uh, yeah, he, he, lovely guy, really, really good fun to work for. Not my personal style of manager. I, th I think I probably wouldn't 100% agree with every approach that he took. But he definitely gave people a chance and he could definitely see things in people. And I worked in, in Adam's shadow for quite a few years in one two three different companies actually so you could argue i'd probably no actually i did follow him around actually i suppose um because there were certain aspects of his approach that i really really liked but i, I kind of grew into my own skin and thought oh i think i'd do that probably a little bit differently in future but what was really lovely was that in the last company that we worked for which was a company called commerce bank um commerce bank is a german bank um the 
the bank was actually, it took over the bank we originally worked for, which was called Dresdner Kleinwater. And as a result of that takeover, there was a slight change, well, no, actually, there's quite a significant change um, as to how, how the bank wanted to manage people, how they wanted to structure the development world, it's coders, change, call it. And there was a guy who did the closest thing to the job that I ended up doing um, beforehand. And he was a very, he was proper techie. I mean, I would have called him an accidental manager, 100, not, not Adam, this other guy. And what was really fascinating is that he was somebody that would walk in, in the morning, had his earbuds in, he would walk to the lift, stand in the lift, not talk to anybody, walk into his office, shut the door. And then other than a stream of people walking in and out of his office all day, would not speak to anybody about anything. He was a complete and utter geek geek, right? Proper, not, not a people person. And then when this change happened, the closest role to his role became av available. Now, we, we've got to understand the, the context here. So I was a VP. Now, a VP in American companies is very senior. Yeah. In banking world, VP is actually quite junior manager. So you've got an associate, like an AVP, a VP, a director, an executive director, managing director. Yeah. So there's quite a few steps between them. And the, this new role came up and they approached every um director slash executive director level person in the company I, I, I came to realize later they approached every person like that in the company who was relative to that world and asked them if they wanted to apply for that job and because of the way the job was structured it was much more of a people role it was all about developing pools of people that could do things investing in people and the kind of stock phrase for most people who were approached with that role and turned it down. Uh, am I allowed to swear on the podcast? It's not a really yes. bad. OK, is they would say, I don't want that because that sounds like HR bullshit. That's <laughs> what they basically would say about the role. And it's because the role was about people. It was about, like I said, creating pools of people with the right skills, looked after, that were nurtured, etc. And they couldn't find anybody to take the role at that ED level. So they, they came down to the director level. Now remember, I'm a VP. And so they did, they came down to the director level and they asked people who wanted to apply and they pretty much got that stock phrase, that sounds like HR bullshit to us. We don't wanna do that. And then Adam was an MD. Okay, so he was right at the top of the tree, but in a different world, he was in operations in the business and I was in technology. And he turned around to the incoming CIO, chief IT officer and said, you should, you should have a look at Paul Holbrook. You should have a chat with him. I think he, he could be a really interesting choice. And so they did. They approached me and they said, would you be interested in this role? It was so funny. I remember when, when, the, when the existing CIO, I was in Frankfurt at the time, and he rang me. He said, are you in Frankfurt? I said, yes, meet me for a coffee. So we had this coffee. I remember I was a VP, VP, D, MD, e, sorry, ED, MD, loads of levels. And he said, so head of development in London. And I said, right, and what would I be doing for him? And he went, no, we want you to apply for the head of development in London. And I went, oh my goodness. Now, imposter syndrome was all my alarms were going. <laughs> right? what, was, I, what was the imposter syndrome saying? How the hell am I going to do that? How the hell am I going to do that? I'm a VP. Now, the interesting thing is, I thought the role was 
a director level role, okay, which is one up from a VP. And I was still thinking to myself, oh, I can't do that. But then they, when they said it was for all of the developers in London, which was 350 people, I kind of went, oh my goodness, how on earth? I mean, why me? But there were so many other people there, right? And you've got to also understand is that all the people that I currently worked for would end up working for me. And the people that work for them would end up working. But it was like, no, they're not going to take me seriously, right? And so I chatted to my, at the time, wife. We are since divorced. Um, and she said to me, she said, so who who will take the role if you don't take it? And you know what? It was a genius stroke. That's a great question. <laughs> because because maybe I should put my, my maybe I should put my ex-wife down here as one of the people. <laughs> he certainly gave me my son, which I cannot have any problem with. No. Um, but she said, who would take the role if you didn't? And it was that question. And it was that previous person who held that role. And I, I remember watching that person walk around and not do the things I thought and thought, do you know what? If I ever got to that level, I would never do it that way. That was the example of learning it the negative mm -hmm. way. And when she asked me that, I just thought, ah, do you know what? I'm going to apply for it. You know, it's, it, it's on them. If I'm not good enough for this role, then it's up to them to tell me I'm not good enough for this role. It's not up to me to tell me I'm not good enough for this role. So that's how I kind of overcame the imposter syndrome bit so I had to go through tests I had to go through an assessment center that was normally 10 people they ran it for one person just me <laughs> Frankfurt in one day it was normally over three days and I did that and I got the job and I went from running a team of 15 to a division of 350 overnight and I did it one step at a time um but if Adam hadn't seen that what they were looking for was a people person. They wanted somebody who liked the HR bullshit. And it wasn't HR bullshit, right? You get nothing done in a company without people. Mm. So if you're not focusing on creating people who feel loved, people who feel valued, etc., then you're going to get nothing done, right? And I'd seen so many techies get promoted up that level. That previous guy, he was a techie, classic. He was a thought leader, absolutely but he wasn't a people leader and yeah that's kind of that that's how that story played out and so i wouldn't have got that i wouldn't have even been offered that role and goodness knows where i'd be now if adam hadn't seen that in me and hadn't quite frankly had the balls to turn around to the very senior people and say have a look at this guy i know he's a vp but give him a chance the interesting thing was <laughs> There was there were two other interesting points of that is that my boss at the time, I told him that I'd been approached to do this role. And he looked at me and he went, but you realize that you'll be responsible for the pay and rations for everybody in London in IT, right? And I went, yeah, and? <laughs> Which is interesting because it's almost like he was trying to impost, well, he wasn't trying to, but his kind of imposter was, but you? <laughs> I was going, yeah, I know, it's kind of great, right? <laughs> so there was that. The other thing that was really that I really love about this is that when I then had the position confirmed, I didn't realize that it was an MD position. So I went from VP to MD right at the top, top of the tree in one jump. And what was really interesting is as soon as it became clear that the role was an MD role, 
the number of people who had previously said, I don't want that because it sounds like HR bullshit. It's amazing how many people came out of the woodwork and said, actually, maybe I, yeah, yeah, I'll apply for it. And it was like, too late. <laughs> too late. <laughs> you said that word, too you late said, now. <laughs> you said it. Um, so, yeah, it was, and for and for the four years I did it, it was the job I was born to do. I absolutely loved it. How did you deal with that? imposter syndrome did it continue into you doing the role you know obviously it it kind of reared its head when you were talking about it but did it continue yeah for a short period afterwards I mean to tell you the truth the biggest do you know what the bit the biggest problem that I had was that I didn't know how I was going to structure the organization underneath me and and what i mean by that is just the first level of what would be executive directors underneath me i had no idea what that should look like and that was quite overwhelming because you're kind of going okay this is mine now how am i going to do that what does it need to look what's the right answer and it, you know often you'll see those posts saying that you know you've got that journey but every journey starts with one step and the way I dealt with it is probably, yeah, it, it is. It's absolutely a, a, um, a case study in that, which is I just thought, well, I'm just going to have to try something. I just have to go with something. And so I did. I, I basically said, OK, well, I think if we do it this way, this way, this way and this way, we put those in there. And I I, I bought in people who were going to work for me, who were originally I'd work for. So, you know, the guy that actually interviewed me and hired me ended up being one of my direct reports, Paul, a guy called Paul Ward. He was a, he was my head of project management. And I ran it past him and I just said, what do you reckon? He went, eh, that could work, you know, and I think he saw that I was just he, he wasn't precious about anything. He just saw that I was there to help him, which I think is the big thing. You know, anybody that goes into that position where they are working, where they are basically managing people that they once worked for. All you have to do is show them that you are totally invested in them. And that goes away really quickly because that's what we want from managers. We just want somebody who cares about us and is going to help us thrive. And that was my that was my core. Right? That was that was actually absolutely at my core. So I just made I, I realized that there is no right answer to that structure. There is no book that tells you that you just have to try something. And so I said, well, let's try this. And it just happened to work. And if it hadn't, I'd have tweaked it. And, you know, I'd looked at so many very senior managers make howling mistakes in the past. And I think I kind of put my money where my mouth is, because rather than say, well, I'm going to do this. I basically went to the people who I appointed and said, I'm thinking about this. What do you reckon? In some cases, I would go, I don't know what on earth we're going to do. Anybody got any ideas? <laughs> and people love to be empowered. They love to be asked because they often have better ideas. They're closer to the coalface than you are. So why wouldn't they have a better idea? So I yeah I just kind of I, I in in computing parlance I ate my own dog food I basically treated people the way I wanted to be treated. Oh, I heard that phrase before. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's a very common thing in agile development. They say we eat our own dog food. So we basically we do what we say we should do, right? Mm. Um, and that's what I did. And when you empower people, when you ask people to step up, it's amazing how much they will. That that makes me think of there was a it was one of these fresh dog food companies on Dragon's Den and they ate their own dog food. I love that. I love that. 
<laughs> it just makes me feel sick. But, um... <laughs> but, but, but there, was one, there was one other benefit to that jump as well. Um, there was there was a guy who didn't work for me, but worked for a kind of um, a parallel, we'll call it a silo. Mm. And he was somebody that had got, had, was very, very like me, very good people, very techie, had gone up each rung of the ladder. And what was interesting is that he got to a certain point and then he found it really hard to let go. He was a he, he was somebody that you wouldn't call it micromanager. He was almost get, getting stuck in the weeds. You know, he was like mm. spending hours in spreadsheets doing things. And I remember him coming into my office one day and I was now an MD and he was a director. I was saying, I won't say his name, but I said, what, what, why are you doing that? He said, because I have to do that. I went, you really don't. <laughs> well, what, why are you doing that? That's something that somebody else should be doing for you. But the thing is, is that there was a slight nervousness in my laughter when I saw what he was doing, because I know that if I'd gone at that that hierarchy the way he had, one step at a time, I probably would have been inclined to get into the same position, you know, because letting go, I was a natural doer. I liked doing things. I was a problem fixer. And it's so easy to get stuck into that. Oh, mm. I'll quicker. By getting that massive leap from VP to MD, I had no choice. I simply, I couldn't. I just had to say, right, I'm going to create five divisions. These are the people that are going to run them. Guys, this is my vision. This is what I value. I'm here for you to help these things. These are the things I want to steer clear of. Do it. (laughs) And I couldn't have done it any other way. I, I literally didn't have the time to start being, getting stuck in the weeds because I just, Mm. oh, so I actually think that jump really did me a favor um, because, I, yeah, I, I think I'd have really struggled to step away from the detail. What do you think were the main, I mean, it's an unusual situation to jump so many levels. Mm, I've yeah, met yeah. a few people that have, have done that, but it's especially leaping over people who used to manage you. That's kind of um, an interesting challenge. Well, people who manage them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, what would you say with the main you know what did you learn from making position from you know vp to md what did you learn about yourself um i don't know what i learned about myself um i mean I actually don't know what I learned about myself. Maybe that will come to me. I think what I learned was my instincts around people when I was a junior manager. My I, I, What I learned was that my instincts were spot on. Because when I became a manager for the first time, unlike a lot of, I, I wasn't unique, but I, I think I was quite rare. When I became a manager for the first time in technology, I no longer saw my job as writing code or developing systems. I saw my job as making it as simple as possible for my people to do theirs. That was it. That that is how I saw it. And I I always described myself as being institutionally lazy. And what I (laughs) meant by that was I had no interest in doing somebody else's job for them. Yeah, I wanted to get away from that stuff so they can do it. Because at some point, you never know when the next thing around the corner comes, either a new job or a promotion or whatever. And if you've built such a dependency on you, then you're actually 
you're shooting yourself in the foot. And so many managers hold on to detail for fear of being made redundant or fear of being let go. Whereas actually it's the one thing that will probably earmark you for being let go because you're not developing people. And a classic one. So that guy I said, who was the guy who didn't want to be a manager. And I said, I think he was the guy that I was succession planning immediately prior to getting off of this job. Mm. And I remember when I when I passed the assessment center and my boss, a guy called Gert Gouverneur in Germany, Gouverneur, what a name, eh? governor, perfect <laughs> name for, for a high level manager. Um, That's nominative determinism. <laughs> so he, he basically said, OK, I'd like you to take up the role. I'd like to do the job. When can you be free? When can you start? And I said, tomorrow. <laughs> and I remember him going, what do you mean tomorrow? You got hand stuff over. I said, that was handed over weeks ago, you know, and it was because I'd already been succession planning this guy, a guy called Jonathan Unjamuth. Um, I've been I've been succession planning him for for months, yeah. And I remember turning around to him and saying, Jonathan, I've just got a new job. I'm now going to be doing this. And he, his phrases were his phrase was F word me, Paul. How the hell did you manage that? <laughs> um, but he said, What what, what how, how how am I supposed to do? This? I said. John, you're already doing it. You've been doing it for months. I've just been taking you on it really slowly to the point where you don't even, re- is that like boiling a frog really slowly? Yes, yeah. That, that that was his succession planning route. I basically started to boil him really slowly. And before he got there, he didn't realise he was doing it. So I think I it, it taught me that that approach to management worked because it worked, it allowed me to step up. I think what it also taught me well, sorry, no, the reason I also know it works is because that worked and works is because that guy who I said I'd never do it his way, the guy that walked into the lift, earphones on, blah, blah, blah. Um, I basically ate my own dog food again on that. You know, I would come into the office in the morning. I was a bit of a superstar. Well, no, not a superstar. I was a bit of a rock star. At that point. People go, it's that guy, it's that guy that got promoted up to MD. And I remember coming into the lift in the mornings and just saying, Morning, everyone. And it's like everybody went, he's talking to us. Why is he talking to us? And I would just talk to people and I would walk the floor and I wouldn't sit in my office all day. And I remember, you know, there there were two things that I think made me stand out as well at that point. But, But I was just living what I honestly believe managers were there to do. And notice I haven't used the word leader here, right? because I think other people decide you're a leader. You don't get to decide that yourself. One of them was when people got promoted. No, no, let's do it the other way around. When I took over that role, there were some people that would get retention bonuses because the organization was getting merged together and you had to secure certain people in critical Mm -hmm. roles. And some people got what they call retention bonuses and some people didn't. And everybody expects they're going to get one, but not everybody does. So the first thing I had to do was to decide with people who who was going to get the retention bonuses. And then the second thing is we had to tell everybody who was and who wasn't going to get it. And I remember thinking to myself, I've got to make a mark here, not just for everybody else, but for my management team, for the people who are working for me. And so I said to them, because I could see the fear in their eyes, they were going to have to go and tell people they weren't going to get a retention bonus around a lot of uncertainty when an organization is being merged. And I said, I tell you what, everybody that gets a retention bonus, you can tell them who got it. Everybody that isn't going to get one, I'll meet with them personally and I'll tell them why. 
and I think that really singled me out as a kind of a oh Jesus he he's not he's not st- he's not stepping away from the hard conversations and I did I, I was just really honest with people and that makes makes a massive difference when you're honest with people. Um, I think the other thing was that when people got promoted, um, usually your boss would come and give you the promotion letter and you get your pay rise and all the other stuff that might come with it. Um, I was often seen walking the floor as part of my daily job because that's when you see what's really going on. But I would go down to people's desks and would shake their hands and congratulate them in front of every. Not not to make a big thing of it. I'd just say, hey, promotion, really well deserved. Congratulations. And you could just see people going, what, why are you standing? Why are you down here? Why are you not asking me up to your office? And it was like, it's just not how you do it, right? This, it, I don't know. I just, I just learned that having that kind of role gives you such an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives. And you don't have to do a lot to make that difference. Most part, most of you just have to, you just have to show them they're seen and heard. That's the biggest thing. Um, so yeah, but what did I learn about me? I probably learned that I could deal with a lot more than I thought I could. Um, but again, I think that was probably just because I was thrown in the deep end and I had no choice but to trust mm-hmm. the people around me, trust, to manage the people around me to do a great job for me, as long as I was very clear on what it was I wanted to um, what I wanted to achieve. Sorry, it's a bit of a long-winded answer. No, thank you. It was a good answer. Let's move on to your next person, which is Emma. You mentioned her at the beginning. Um, a wife? Um, let's talk about her again. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> what, what role, other than being your lovely wife, um, what role did she play in... in uh, you mentioned that she encouraged you to jack it all in and do something different and that's it right i mean that is it i i get i i I didn't say it at the time it was a massive spoiler alert um yeah the the fourth person is emma emma causa uh professionally she retains her her uh, her her maiden name or her non-married name yeah i think and you know I, i i always get quite emotional when i tell people this story um, and I've already kind of told it, so I, I won't go into too much detail. But I think she just saw in me that I was uh, because after being that manager, you know, d- doing that role for four years, um, that's around the time I got divorced. Um, and just after I got divorced, I left. Um, I left Commerce Bank. Things started to change at the top in Germany and it wasn't the company I, it, I, I'd been part of to start with. So it was time to move on. And just around that time, I left. And I started doing contract work, interim work. So I did an interim COO role for Lloyds Banking Group, um, uh, interim program manager role for Royal Bank of Scotland, an interim operational director for uh, Royal Bank of Scotland again, etc. And I really didn't enjoy those. You know, being an interim, you're not really part of the company. You're not really part of the culture. Nobody really looks to you for... It's kind of like running your own business and then going back to work for somebody else again. It's a really hard thing to do. And I am now officially unemployable. So um, along with Stephen Redgrave, if you ever see me working for somebody else again, shoot me. Uh, <laughs> but, bit, bit harsh. Yeah. <laughs> and then he ended up back at Sydney in 2000. Um, so, yeah, he I, 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 I don't know. I just what I didn't enjoy the last four years of working in the city in those interim roles it it wasn't it wasn't at the core of me 
it was more about earning money and keeping you know the wolf from the door than anything and uh what was it four years after i was divorced i met i met emma and we ended up in a relationship together and we eventually ended up being married you know very very short time later we would you know we are kindred spirits meant to be together but she just turned around to me one day and she could see how desperately unhappy i was um i would probably say i was depressed at that point um because i really wasn't enjoying it and she said look you're really not enjoying what you do you hate it why don't why don't you know i'm doing pretty well she said why don't i just look after us for a while and you go start start your own thing and see if you can change the world and and i did you know i started off um i i, I trained as a coach i thought coaching was the route to that um but then when i started selling myself as a coach having qualified um a lot of people said I, I, it sounds really fascinating but i've got any time to be coached and i thought time how have you not got time to be coached and then that as a as an objection really drove me to create a door opener which is what ended up as diary detox that's where the diary detox method came from mm-hmm. was me showing people they do have time it's just because they're doing a lot of stuff they just don't need to do mm-hmm. um and from there that went on to becoming not just a door opener it actually ended up becoming the business in itself the diary detox method mm-hmm. diary detox limited is that company that that owns that ip and created the app and I wrote the book and delivered workshops and so on and so forth. And what was interesting is that took me down a road of being um, quite, I don't know, time management focused. And it's not about time management. It was never about time management. It was about leadership. It was about self-leadership and it was then about leading other people. And that comes when you have the time to lead, when you have time to do those things. None of that would have happened if Emma hadn't given me the opportunity um, to step out and do my own thing. And there were two options. I'd actually played around with creating a dating app, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. The dating app was called WitWoo because it sounds like, um, <laughs> and it was all about, it doesn't matter what it was, but I was kind of toying with both ideas. And I remember Emma probably about six months in, I remember her sitting me down <laughs> and this is classic Emma. And she said, look, I don't mind you not working. I don't mind you starting your own business. But at the moment, you're mucking around with two different things. I don't care which one you do. Just choose one and do that one well. And that was the real kick up the backside I needed. Because at that point, I honestly thought she was saying I could do it because she was just trying to give me a way out. And I was kind of also applying for jobs on the side, none of which I got because they could see in me that I didn't want to do it. Um, and so she gave me a back side and she said, look, just choose one. And I knew that the, 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 the people becoming better leaders, creating a world of better led people was at my absolute core. And yeah, she supported me on that journey um, without question. Um, and there have been moments where, where it's really tested me. It's the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Absolutely. But What's been so hard? Um, it's that kind of classic thing. I mean, I've never seen the film, but I've I've been made aware of it called The Field of Dreams. And there's a famous quote in it that says, if you build it, they will come. Mm-hmm. I think my approach to starting my business was the Field of Dreams approach, which is if you build it, they will flock mm-hmm. to you. Everybody will come to you. Everybody's got a problem with time. Everybody's got a problem with leadership. They'll just come to you. Yeah, it doesn't happen that way. <laughs> no. Um, 
if somebody and I've, I've said this a lot recently, if somebody had told me six and a half years ago, because that's how long I've been doing this now. If somebody had told me six and a half years ago, it was going to be this hard to get to this point. I wonder whether I'd have had the courage to do it. But I'm glad I didn't know because it was 100 percent in the core of me, you know. There's not a moment that I don't meet somebody for the first time. They ask me what I do. And I talk about disrupting the, toss, the, the, the existing story of toxic leadership. And when I finish talking, they'll just go, God, you love what you do, don't you? And I'll go, yeah, <laughs> I really do. So it, it was the right thing to do. But now when most people in the city kind of talk to me about, about their stressful days, I just kind of go, you don't know stress. <laughs> you know, if, if, if you don't feel well tomorrow, you stay in bed and somebody will pay you. If I don't feel well tomorrow, nobody pays me. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's just been really hard to, especially with so much money spent on leadership development and coaching and time management and all these things. So much money has been spent. It's about 300 billion a year is spent worldwide on those things. And yet there's still the biggest problem businesses have right now is lack of good leadership. And I think everybody's tried most things and it hasn't worked. And so when you have another challenger coming onto the market or be it a rebellious brand like, like Time to Lead or like Diary Detox, it's always possible you'll look at it and go, well, if it were that good, then everybody would be doing it. And it's like, but every pioneer was the first in their market at some point. That's just the way it is. So I think it's been hard to... It's been it was hard to get the voice out there. It mm. was hard to stand out amongst a crowd of other people, charlatans, I would mm. say. The number of I mean, crikey, I I remember in one of my last interim roles, one of them, I'll say. So therefore, you don't know who it is. Um, this organization ran an employee engagement survey and it said their people felt 44 percent well led. Now, this was a 100,000 person company, right? So feeling 44% well-led is not a good place to be. And so they invested millions of pounds in a leadership development program. It was three separate days. Um, there was this big binder. Um, everybody who managed more than one person mandatorily, if that is the right word, had to go on that course everybody and if you didn't go on it they would be a tick box why haven't you gone on it get on that course get on that course one year later having put everybody through that they re-asked their people and then they said they felt 34 percent well led <laughs> god <laughs> it went down yeah and it's because we're doing the wrong things mostly we've got the wrong people going into management i was just going to say that because before we uh started recording we were talking about the right people going into mm. management roles and you know how much of a part do you think that plays in in poor management or the wrong people going huge. into management roles huge look, look i mean th th there's a brilliant um advertising campaign at the moment from the chartered management institute the cmi which i love and and the, the biggest thing i'm gutted about is that i didn't think of it um it's a really clever spin on some of the common phrases that are used around poor management. Um, for example, they'll have the word 
um, winging it, which is what most accidental managers do. They wing it. And then they crossed out the WI, put a pink slash, which is one of the big brand colors of the CMI, with the word BR, bringing it on it. And it's obviously trying to suggest that having an association with the CMI is going to change you from an accidental manager into a conscious leader. And indeed, the CMIs, one of their initial strap lines was turning today's accidental managers into tomorrow's conscious leaders. Nice. And one of my biggest bugbears with this is that, and, and the difference between some or an organization like that, which I have a huge amount of respect for, and my organization, Time to Lead, is I don't want them to become accidental managers in the first place. Yeah. That's my dream because we shouldn't need to. We shouldn't need to have to go through this place where either you promote the most competent expert in your world, just assuming that they can then manage people, probably with no training. And that's a large part of the CMI campaign is saying that 82% of managers get no training whatsoever when they go into management. But the big thing for me is that that suggests that what we should be doing is we should therefore be throwing more training at people. Remember what I said originally, 300 billion a year is spent on management and leadership development every year and we've still got the problem. So I think it's about time we acknowledge that training is not the only answer. It is part of the answer, but I think there are two other bits that come before that. One is people. We need to start putting the right people in those roles, people who actually want to manage. And secondly, we have to start working on mindset. You could train an expert as much as you like in management theory, management development. But if you put them into a role where, A, they don't want to manage, they don't like people, they just want to be left alone, or B, you, you um, unknowingly impose targets on them that actually disincentivizes them from managing their people, truly managing them, then it doesn't matter what training you give them, they're still going to fail. Um, and for me, the biggest part, the biggest gap in management development is putting the wrong people on it. And that's why, that's why I created Time to Decide. Time to Decide is a day where people who might want to be a manager, who you think might want to be a manager, who probably want to be a manager, but you don't think should be a manager, where you get them to come come together with other people like them and explore what becoming a manager will, be, will mean. Investing in people, taking on their mistakes as your own mistakes, <laughs> dealing with their stuff when they're struggling and they will struggle with stress, with overwhelm, with all these different things, showing them that that is the core of what management is. That isn't the kind of side task. That is the task. Show them that stuff. And at the end of it, ask them, so do you still want to be a manager? And it's amazing how many people say no. Mm. Bingo. Don't put those people on a management course because they're not interested in the job. They just want to get paid more money and they want to get a better title. And that's not a good enough incentive to want to become a manager. So, yeah, I think I think it's a fundamental part of, of, of creating managers who lead with love. Well, I'm so interested in what you just said because it really chimes with my views as well. I always talk about knowledge mindset and skill slash behaviors as being three things that you really need to focus on um, and mindset is often missed out 
Um, but also knowledge, actually, particularly I do a lot of my work in the diversity and inclusion world. There's an enormous amount of knowledge that's associated with that, um, that we we uh, downplay, I think, just understanding, you know, the complexity of, of that landscape. Yeah. Um, the other thought I had was around, um, you know, you're a really good example, I think, where you kind of made that leap Um from you know a much lower level to a more senior level is the things often that we make us successful at a um at a lower level um are not the same things that are going to make us successful at a more senior level and actually there's plenty of people in organizations who might not be the most shining stars and i'm not saying that this was you but might not be the most shining stars at a lower level but actually would make really excellent managers um but they don't get that opportunity because they've not got the skill set that's going to make them as successful lower down yeah absolutely um and, and, and this is a fundamental problem right i mean at the end of the day i At the end of the day, the the only qualification you really need, need, okay? It's ideal if that you are also knowledgeable about the area in which you're doing this stuff, but it's not necessary, yeah? It's beneficial, it's handy. Like I was a development manager, so it was handy that I understood the world of development, but I fundamentally don't believe, well, when I certainly went up to that most senior level, none of what I knew about computing, coding, testing, none of that was relevant. It, it, I didn't even use any of it. It wasn't, it just wasn't. Um, I think the difference with me is that even though I was lower level, I was a lower level manager. So the very mm. same thing that made me a good lower level manager made mm-hmm. me a good senior level manager because it's it's really no different. It really isn't any different because, you know, I've been talking to somebody about this very recently. They're talking about a big step up. And I said, but it's no different. Yeah, but it's like hundreds of people. So, yeah, but you're only going to have five reporting to you. And down here, how many have you got reporting to you now? Eight. So you're going to have less people reporting to you. It's easier. <laughs> and it's that, you know, we, we do create those barriers for ourselves, that mm. we, you know, but yeah. I would say the one, the one big difference I do think there is at a more junior and a more senior level, depending on the role, is that a more enterprise leadership mindset and again it comes down to mindset you know that kind of um it's not just your area your that it's that responsibility and feeling accountability for um uh other maybe other parts of the business i mean i think that doesn't kick in till you know much more senior roles but that for me is where i've seen a big shift for people and it is a mindset shift more than anything else no, I suppose again, that's that the the reason that that hasn't come out is because that's that is also that was kind of intrinsic in me beforehand. Mm-hmm. I never saw my job as just running my team. Mm-hmm. I saw my job as my team delivering for the other teams around us. Mm-hmm. I mean, in technology, it's crazy the number of times that you will hear IT talk about finance or. IT talk about HR or HR talk about finance or whatever. And the way they will talk about each other, it's almost like they are enemies, mm-hmm. right? Now, the interesting thing is, for me, it's almost like when when you have that situation and, and the, the analogy that I use, it's like watching five-year-old children play rugby the first time they play rugby. Nobody wants to get hit. So as soon as they get the ball, they go and they just throw it. <laughs> Because if I ain't got the ball, I ain't going to get hit. And that 
for me was really, I mean, it happens everywhere, right? But for me, my, my job was about making it as simple as possible for my people to do theirs. But the question is, what did I see their job as being? Their job was to make it as simple as possible for every other department in the organization mm -hmm. to do theirs. So for me, it really was no different because the enterprise, I, I was living the enterprise yes. at the team level. And again, you're right, it, it isn't put forward, but that's some of the things that I bring out in something like Time to Manage, which is you've got to stop thinking about this as just your little thiefdom. Yeah. If you if you don't help the tech, uh, if you don't help the hardware guys do their bit, then the thing that your software sits on will fail. And if that fails, we lose customers. We lose customers, your job's gone. It's in your interest to help them. We're a team. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I totally get how it comes across that way, that it should, it's different. In my view, I don't think it should be. I think we should, from the very first moment we become a manager, we should be starting to live that enterprise mindset, that it's about what's around us, not just what's under us, I suppose. Mm. Mm. yeah no i don't disagree um right let's move on to uh your next person your last person um your final person um that you're going to talk about tell us a bit about her rachel savage so it's interesting because and i'm talking about this at the moment when I, I said, you know, I started that business and I really struggled to get that message out, yeah, to stand out from the crowd. And Rachel was somebody who I met at a networking event very early in, in the business. And she reached out for me because you, you meet a lot of different people at networking events, but they're either going to be a coach or a financial advisor <laughs> or somebody like that. So they're all the same. And I remember thinking to myself, and I was a coach, right? And it was that one day, and it was at this very meeting where I met her, where I think about eight people around the table were a coach. But you had a financial coach, you had a life coach, you had a performance coach, you had an executive coach. Um, and I just thought, you know what? I don't like being a coach because <laughs> you just can't stand out. But I got chatting to her because she was, she called herself a brand storyteller. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And so we just got chatting um, and what she showed me was that although I knew what I did, why I did it, who I did it for and how I did it, I was really bad at telling other people that. And often I was probably telling them in the wrong order. Yeah, you've, you've seen Simon Sinek start with why TEDx talk. Mm -hmm. probably a lot of what she does really talks to that, but she doesn't affiliate herself with him in any way, shape or she doesn't need to. Because what, where she comes from is whenever you look at like, if you look at, let's say, most advertising campaigns, she looks at organizations as telling a story. And most of the time, the organizations that have their ads, they cast themselves as the hero of the story. Yeah. Look at what we do. We do this to help you do that. We're the best in our industry. Look at how amazing things will be if you come to us. And so they're very much casting themselves as the hero, whereas Rachel's approach was to start changing things. She said, look, think about any movie that you watch. Yeah. If you look at Harry Potter, for example, is Dumbledore the hero of the story? And it's like, no. She said, no, Harry's the hero of the story, right? Dumbledore is the mentor. Okay. And what she worked with me to understand is that I'm the mentor. I'm not the hero. 
Yeah, you're the hero. You're the person that's struggling. You're the person that's living underneath the stairs in Dursley. And the funny thing is, is that she lives in Dursley. <laughs> Hopefully not <laughs> under the stairs. No, no, not indeed. But it was the Dursleys. And actually the Dursleys were named after that place, Dursley. Um, and she said, this isn't about you. It's about them. It's about their struggle. So um, what she helped me to do, and it was really interesting because I've, I've worked with marketing people in the past to try and create the customer value proposition and try and, try and create this book. And it never worked. I kept going back to what I do and how I do it. And Rachel had some really simple, and again, that's one of my values, simplicity, really simple and really clever ways of getting me to talk in a way that and it, it was mainly through writing, actually. I, I, the, one of the first things she gets you to do after doing some initial stuff is, is, is write a letter. And it was really fascinating that by writing that letter to the person I was writing it to in the way that I did, brought out the core of what I was about, the core of my story and what the struggles were that we're going through. And what that allowed her to do is that allowed her to pick out certain parts of that letter. And then she would write, basically pick them out and, and summarize them into a story document. And what was really fascinating is that when I looked at what was there, I went, wow, that's a really great question. How, where did that come from? She said, you wrote that. I went, no, I didn't. She said, you did. <laughs> and she showed me and she showed me the highlighted bit where I'd written that. And I went, I didn't realize I was writing that. She went, exactly. And so she was really clever at bringing out the core of my story about why I was doing this, who I was doing it for, and more importantly, what were they going through? What were the pains that were in their world right now? How did it make them feel? Why did they think it was happening? What had they tried to do? All these different things. And what was really fascinating is that for the first moment, I actually started talking from my potential client's point of view rather than from my point of view. And just as a simple example, I'd, I'd, I'd done a post a couple of days before we I got the story document from her. And this post had said something like, wouldn't it be great if you had more time to do this or if you had more time to focus on your people instead of doing this, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't really get much uptake. And then one of the messages that came out and I posted it the day after I got it and it got more engagement than I'd ever had. And it simply started off by saying, did you have trouble sleeping last night? Were you worried about what you didn't get done today? and what you probably won't get done tomorrow. It was as simple as that. And it had more engagement than I'd ever had. And it was because anybody looking at that, well, anybody that looked at my original post would probably have gone, well, yeah, it would be great if I could do that, but that's not possible. Okay, mm -hmm. the deniers, the objection straight away. Whereas the second post, they looked at it and go, yeah, that's me. Click. And it was as simple as that. And so... Rachel helped me verbalize my story from the hero's point of view. And in my current guise, the hero is called Cassie. Cassie is a either a HR director, a head of operations, somebody who is really struggling, having spent thousands and thousands on leadership development, is still not seeing the leaders and managers that she wants to see. That's who she is. And so the story now basically talks from her point of view. So when those posts come out, it's going to be talking to her 
Are you fed up with the thousands you've spent on, on leadership development and are still struggling to get the leaders you paid for? That kind of thing. And so, so that's kind of why, Rachel, but what's interesting, and of course, you were talking about being an author um, when we mm-hmm. first spoke ages yes. ago. Yes, yep. And this is why Rachel's also really important to this, which is because at the end of our first session talking, Rachel turned around to me and she said, you know, there's a book in this, don't you? <laughs> and I I loved the idea of writing a book, but I got a D in English language the first time I took it. I was not, I wasn't good with words. I'm actually pretty okay with words now, but I wasn't good with words. And I'd have loved to have written a book, but I had no idea what a book would be, what it would talk about, etc. And it was her saying that and her helping me draw out that story that actually led to me eventually when I realized that my calling was to go back into big businesses and help them create, disrupt the existing story of toxic management. And I didn't want to leave them behind. It's basically those words that got me to write my book. What are you doing? The uncomfortable truth about how you waste time at work. So, yeah, she helped me find my voice and I probably wouldn't have written a book if it hadn't been for her saying that. And I, I still work with her to this very day. She is my work wife. Um, she reminds me of my sister quite a lot, interestingly. But we're, yeah, we're very close. We probably talk, if not every day, every other day, I would say. Um, and yeah, she's really helped me. And her, her ability to generate ideas around that story as well, once you've got it, have you thought about doing this? Wow, what a great idea. Um, can I tell you about one of the one of the ideas? It's, it's another book. Yes, please do. So we were talking about one of the things Rachel talks about is a brand gift. And it's something that you can give away to clients. And it doesn't have to be a physical gift. It could be a webinar that you do for free mm-hmm. that helps them understand a challenge they're having or whatever. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about a gift for Cassie. And I'd had this idea of creating a Rubik's Cube that had the different colours of the diary detox method on it around leading, managing, doing, floating and living. And she kind of went, yeah, plastics. I don't know. I don't really like the idea of that. And we were just kicking ideas around. And then she just turned around and she went, hang on a minute. And it's only because she knows my story that she had this idea. She went, hang on a minute. She ran off and she came back and she brought me this book. And it was one of those spoof ladybird books. Yes, yes. In a way, it's the Ladybird book to driving a car or blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And it was called the Ladybird book to meetings. And as you went through, there were 52 pages of the Peter and Jane type or Janet and John, depending on how mm-hmm. old you are. The Peter and Jane storytelling. And it was spoofing the world of business and how meetings are so misused and how crazy it is. And she turned around and she said, why don't we write one of these lady book birds the lady book book of management and what it would do and and what's interesting is all of the pages all of the themes for each of the pages are in my story they're called um the ordinary world messages she said we could do one page for each of those things about how crazy it is that managers will spend all their time you know Managers are the most important people in a company. They must be. They get paid the most and they have the coolest titles. And it was like, it's ridiculous, right? But it's true. That's how people think about it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to actually create a ladybird book of management that we can give to Cassie so that Cassie will look at that and go, oh, my God, that's us. That is so (laughs) us, right? And who knows where that will go? Hopefully that will take Cassie on a journey in a fairly gentle way because you don't want Cassie to feel 
uncomfortable or ridiculed. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to look at it and go, the first step in fixing a problem is, is admitting you have one. And this tells you you probably have one. So her, her idea is generation. And it's just because she knows the story mm-hmm. that helps her to do that stuff. So yeah, she's been a, she, she, she is the final person and the story is to be continued. Um, I now have an image of Cassie um, in my mind. <laughs> what does she look like? <laughs> she looks like all the HR people I've ever known merged into <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she, she, she's a HR person. She could be an L&D person, mm. but she could be. She, she's likely to also potentially be a, a, a chief operating officer or a CEO, mm-hmm. someone who's just fed up of not getting what they need to get. So, yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Love that. Right. Um, Paul, I'm going to ask you uh, a couple of my typical questions that I ask all of my guests. The first one is uh, advice to your younger self. Ooh, um, this is a hard one, right? Because I don't believe in regrets. Mm-hmm. And the reason I don't is because if I was going to change anything, it would suggest that I'm not happy with where I am now because mm-hmm. I do believe in causality. Yeah. What you do then mm-hmm. affects what you do now. And I'm really happy where I am. And I, and I wouldn't forego any of the experiences I've been through because otherwise I wouldn't be here. So I don't think I'd change anything, but if I was going to give myself, if I have given my son this um, advice, um, it's that you, you never get anything done without people. Mm-hmm. So care about people and everything else will take care of itself mm-hmm. lovely i think that's beautiful what about your strap line your title for your story <laughs> um yeah for me it was there is no right way i did it my way <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was such a i mean there's that book squiggly careers i've had the mm-hmm. squiggliest of careers but again, I wouldn't change any of it. I mean, crikey, I, I just, I've, it does scare me sometimes that when you talk about all the things that have happened and Cohen saying what she said and, and all that stuff, one person not saying one of those things. Yeah. And it wouldn't have happened or I yeah. don't think it would have happened. So yeah. Yeah. I just go with it. <laughs> yeah. It's that sliding doors thing, isn't it? It's fascinating. It absolutely. absolutely. What about a book that you would recommend? So for me, there's a book I read. I can't remember when it was already, probably about four years ago. And I liked it because of its commentary on management and also because of its simplicity. I really loved it. And it was a, a book a book called Good to Great mm-hmm. by called Jim Collins. And yeah, it, it, it was just simple, really, really simple. The way it got me to really think about when I was, in the in the early stages of diary detox got me to think about some of the things that I was doing which was effectively drawing people away from what I was doing I was pushing them away rather than drawing them in it was really fascinating and it was this we called it a flywheel concept so look out for that but one of the other things that well very very early on it was talking about getting the right people on the bus and talking about that that is it right people mm. get the right people on the bus when I got that big jump up to 350 people and I had those five people I put five completely different people in each of those roles. Um, I had one guy that was the kind of the, the really ambitious type. I had the one that was what you call the 
the, the union rep. He was like really caring about people, wanted the best for people. Somebody else who was a really high achiever. As a, and all these people were there for a different reason. I remember one of my peers saying to me, why on earth have you put those people there? And I said, because they're going to all give me a different perspective on what's going on. I'm going to get the range of ideas and we'll just have to agree one to go with. That for me was my example of getting the right people on the bus. So it really resonated with me. And I saw that I thought, because I did that, I got the right people on the bus and it wasn't always easy, but it was really, really simple. That's what you do. Put the right people on the bus and everything else will work out. Thank you. I love that book too. Um, yeah, I think it's, I, I, I even just like the title. Um, I find it really useful uh, as just as a phrase when I'm talking to people. Um, final thing is you've talked a bit about your uh, Ladybird book uh, that's that's coming. Uh, what's next for you? Where are you going? Well, this is kind of the inflection point, I think, for me. So Diary Detox is now done, <laughs> as in my involvement in it is kind of done. It's now an app. Anybody can now learn the 10 habits. They can subscribe to the app. It's automated. They can go do it. And I have very minimal involvement in that. Mm -hmm. But it is, it is a foundational part to my leadership model, which is around the colors and, and so on. And so it's now moving into the time to lead world. Mm -hmm. So we've now got time to decide, time to manage and time to lead. So any organization that wants to create an aspiring manager's program they can do that just simply by pl either plugging and playing or taking the whole lot of that journey. Um, so that's ongoing at the moment and that's, that's working out really well, but there's something else that's part of time to lead, which is just, well, I wouldn't say just, just reared its head. It's been rearing its head for a while, but I'm really excited about it. And, it, and it's about that conversation we were having around everybody investing in skills and nobody really investing in mindset and people. Mm. And the key for me is that I think we now need to start opening eyes of Cassie. Yeah, Cassie's there. She spent a lot of money doing all this stuff and it hasn't worked. And the instinct is, let's just buy some more courses. And that and that probably won't work either because it hasn't worked before. 300 billion a year. I will say that again. So for me, whilst you've got it's time to decide and it's time to manage and it's time to lead that that's the ideal place where you want organizations to go, but they're not going to go there unless they take time to understand, understand why what they have done to now hasn't given them the results they want. So we basically created time to understand and it's more of a consulting engagement. Okay. So what this is, is an organization spent a lot of money doing this stuff and it hasn't worked. And we want to know why it hasn't worked and what we can do to fix it. So basically, time to understand is about going into an organization, understanding what the indicators are right now. What is it that they're seeing, hearing, feeling and saying that tells them that leadership isn't working? Um, and that could be external indicators like Glassdoor. It could be internal indicators like engagement surveys and so on. It's then about um, taking that knowledge and then running some diagnostics, some diagnostics with their management community to fill in some of the gaps so that we can paint the full picture because this isn't just about skills. It's about tone from the top. It's about people. And it's also about mindset. And when you run some of the diagnostics we run, people's mindset comes to the fore really quickly and it's really quite compelling. And so the idea is you take those 
indicators, you run some other diagnostics, you then paint the full picture, which will explain why that investment hasn't already worked. And then you work with them to co-create a plan that will either bring in new things or reuse most of the stuff they already have just with some tweaks. Mm. So for example, if you want managers, I'll give you a quick example. If you want managers to self, not select, self um, exclude themselves from management, yeah, to normalize the idea that people say, no, I don't want to be a manager, you've got to give them another route. And most organizations haven't got another route. Yeah. So part of time to understand might show them that the only thing you're missing is giving them another route. So mm-hmm. give them another route, and then you're going to give people the confidence that if they don't want to go into management, they can go into something else and not have to worry about losing their job or it being the end of their career. So time to understand is about understanding what you're doing right now, why it hasn't worked, and what you need to do to make it work and get back that return on investment mm. in so millions that, of pounds that you've invested in leadership development. It's a much more systemic way of approaching um, leadership and leadership development. Absolutely. And, and, and I don't think, and, and I think it is a truly a consulting engagement, right? Because you shouldn't have to do that continually. Yeah. You should have to do that once. You should just look at your existing landscape and go, oh, wow, we didn't realize that was happening. Well, okay. What can we do about that? Come up with a plan. They either go and implement that or they have me help them do that. But once that's been done, you step away and you shouldn't yeah. have to then revisit that as long as you stay within the pattern Mm-hmm. and just go and operate sometimes i think we get a little bit caught up alan d and hr sometimes get a little bit caught up thinking well we should do that it's like no this is different your job is to rationalize that not to actually figure out why it's gone wrong in the first it's great if you can but not always great if you can't so yeah that's the next thing time to understand is is, is the next kind of key chapter in time to lead um journey brilliant well thank awesome. you so much <laughs> for your time um, I've loved hearing your story and all the different people uh, that you've have influenced you along the way as you say just sometimes it's a question or a uh, an action that they've done that sent you on a particular trajectory so really fascinated to hear that so thank you very much no thank you for letting me tell the story I really enjoyed it you're welcome This podcast is brought to you by Liberare Consulting, with editing provided by Hawkins Social. If you enjoyed today's episode, why not click on the subscribe button so you are the first to hear about new episodes. We look forward to welcoming you back soon.